1: Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. You care about where your food comes from, whether it's for you or your pets. That's why Purina makes every ingredient count and is committed to responsible sourcing of ingredients. Learn more at purina.com/cares.
0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from the Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Simon from the Post.
1: Um, hey, it's Dave a- Ferran from the Post. Have you got a second?
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 30th. Today, the story of a police officer being asked to do his job differently. And how church choirs are weathering the pandemic.
2: It's the the difference between power and influence. And probably... 90% of what you need to do as a police officer involves power, physical power,
1: physical presence. Earlier this summer, I went to Huntsville, Alabama to observe the police department giving officers mental health de-escalation training.
0: That's national reporter Hannah Dreyer. She spent a few days in Huntsville in June because the police department there was giving officers new training on how to handle mental health-related calls. And she wanted to see whether those officers were actually using that training once they get back to the field.
2: There's some things you do, you stick take care of business. But in these special circumstances, these special populations, you learn that it's more important to have influence and power. And once you understand the power of influence... Your idea of using force all the time will go
1: way, way down. So police departments across the country have been seeing more and more mental health calls as psychiatric services have been defunded across the country. And these calls are among the most likely to end in fatal shootings. Somewhere from a quarter to a half of all police shootings involve somebody in a mental health crisis. And that's especially true in Alabama. In Alabama, police have fatally shot 26 people who are in mental health crises in the last five years. And four of those shootings have happened in Huntsville, Alabama. And so in an attempt to reduce those shootings and make mental health calls safer, the police department has rolled out this training to try to encourage officers to Take mental health calls more seriously and approach them in a more empathetic, de-escalating way.
2: When I addressed the feelings, I told him that I validated how he felt. If you don't do them two things, you cannot set up report. Once you get report, you'll have influence, then you can get behavior change. So that's what we're gonna go for. But the whole thing about this is how we
0: listen. So then in Huntsville, why are they investing all this money in training police to do this rather than giving this money to like social workers or other people who would be able to respond to these calls?
1: A lot of this really comes down to money. So in Huntsville, the city allocates $51 million a year for the police department and less than a million dollars a year for behavioral health services. And the response in Huntsville and all across the country has been to try to train police to do these social work jobs In addition to their other responsibilities because it's just much cheaper than hiring a bunch of new people who will focus only on mental health calls and that's been true in major police departments and also at the national level in June Trump signed an executive order on police reform and he said we're not going to defund police we're going to go the opposite direction and we're going to train police so that they're perfectly trained and this sort of mental health de-escalation training is really at the heart of Trump's executive order. So
0: what does this training actually look like? Today's class is how do you listen.
2: It ain't about how you talk, it's how you listen.
1: The training is all about trying to teach officers not to use force and to go more slowly when they're dealing with somebody in a mental health crisis. So I showed up to this training and the officers looked like they were in detention. They were like slumped (laughs) over on tables. They were already asking if they could be dismissed early. (laughs) And the trainer said that he understood that he felt like that when he had to go to these trainings himself as a patrol officer. And it had taken him being a crisis negotiator to learn that what you say to people in a crisis really can make a difference.
2: The biggest problem you have with police officers, we're so used to going to a place telling everybody what to do. So doing that, you never have the opportunity to listen.
1: And so the training teaches officers about the different kinds of mental health crises, like somebody could be manic, somebody could be suicidal. And then it just tries to walk them through how to be a good listener. So a lot of it is just sort of teaching them how to ask questions and how to stand in an open, inviting posture.
2: Giving up a little bit of control gives you actually greater control. If I read, I'm getting too close, he ain't liking it. By me, back up, hey man, what if I just step back here? Did I not just give him a little bit of control right there?
1: Like the trainer kept telling the officers to put their hands by their heart to indicate that they were sincere, and the officers would say, "Well, we want our hands by our guns."
0: (laughs) Feels like a a good uh, a good symbol for the crux of this problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, the officers feel like they have to be out there, super defensive, trying to protect themselves, trying to protect other people from somebody who could be in a crisis and could be violent, and the trainers are trying to convince them that it can be both safe and effective to do a different kind of policing.
2: So, where's the argument is now? Well, the only way you can demand an ID is if they are suspected of committing a crime. Okay, yeah, so one. if somebody runs and you don't know no crime, why chase after? I don't because I'm fat, short, can't run <laughs> a, a lot of that is... We got personal fast in here. I'm saying. A lot of Definitely. a lot of that's dependent on the on the, the call service, the environment. And a lot of your your extenuating circumstances.
1: One moment that stood out to me from the training was a morning that the trainer the trainer was trying to explain to the officers that sometimes it makes sense to let a person in a mental health crisis run. So usually if a police officer sees somebody running from them, they're going to give chase because the assumption is maybe that person committed a crime.
0: Even though maybe they're just scared, which is like an intuitive human response.
1: Right, right, right. There's a million reasons somebody could run. And if you're having a paranoid episode, there's, you know, a million more reasons that you might run. And so the trainer was saying, just consider sometimes you don't have to give chase. You can go find that person later. And one of the sergeants in this class got really angry, and he started shouting.
2: That's also why they became cops,
1: Lonnie. He said, that's why we became cops. That's why we all became cops. He was banging the table.
2: Well, I don't want to take the instinct out of the 15, 16 years (laughs) old. I I get it. I get it.
1: And one of his seatmates sort of patted him on the shoulder and said, "Okay, we get it. You're aggressive. But the police... I think really took this as sort of an affront to what they see as their core mission, which is maintaining law and order.
0: And what did what did you make of that of that moment?
1: It just seems like so challenging to try to be reshaping police to do this other kind of work. I mean, police officers are are trained to deploy force, In this town in Huntsville, police officers get hundreds of hours of training in how to use their firearms and hundreds of hours more in how to fight on the ground, how to put people into headlocks. And then you're giving them 16 hours of training in how to not use force. And Mm. their response was, we're cops. People have to follow our commands. That's what all of their training is telling them. So tell me about what happened after the training finished. Um, I rode around with one of the officers who was in this training. An officer called Thomas Parker.
3: Yeah. Smart. Uh, I, well, what would have been smarter if to do it at the taillight, Because I knew that, that would have definitely Oh, uh, yeah. But I just.
1: Yeah, hard to shatter a really, windshield. Tried, failed. <laughs> oh, it sounds like it worked. My rookie was just like. I know, it's like, like movie like, oh,
3: stuff. He, like, he just stood there. I was like, go, go, go.
1: <laughs> officer Parker has been. In the police force for 10 years before that he was a marine and he is a very proactive police officer the department said he's one of the best they have and yeah. what he loves is felony arrests so he pulls people over but rarely gives them tickets he tries not to do minor drug busts he doesn't care about that sort of smaller stuff he wants to put people in prison for burglary, for shootings, for what he thinks of as like serious police work. He is 6'5". He's got a buzz cut. 6'5"? He's a very imposing presence and he works out a lot to try to be more imposing out there. He thinks that it's safer for everyone if he looks like tough. So he can bench press 300 pounds. He's got, uh, he chews tobacco all day. He has a Bulletproof vest and stands up very straight, even if it's pouring rain. And, you know, he's just trying to project force because that's what he's been taught.
0: Is he from Huntsville originally?
1: He's from Huntsville. Huntsville is a segregated town where the south part of the town is pretty wealthy, very white, and the north part is poorer and is mostly black people. So Parker grew up in the south. He had never really gone to the north until he became a police officer there. But he requested to be a police officer in the north because he saw it as this really action-packed place with a lot of potential to make felony arrests. He goes out and he responds to calls all day long with other white cops. The residents are almost always black, and he says he's just sort of gotten used to this low-level tension and people saying, "You guys kill black people." People saying they don't trust him. So you've you've chosen north like all through. Mm-hmm. Is it? Like, is it ever strange being a white officer with, like, all the calls we've gone out to no. from black people?
3: Nope. Not strange at all. It's just, I mean, everybody, they're all people. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Do you think it comes into it? Like, do the people who you go oh, out to? Oh, the race?
3: I mean, you see, I mean, I, I cannot tell you how many times they... Black person has called me the n-word. Yes. And I can't tell you how many times I've arrested a white person and they have said, y'all shoot black people. Really? Or you're only doing this to me because I'm black. I mean, and I'm just like, what are, what you're trying to get me to say or,
4: mm-hmm. or anything
3: like that? And I'm just like, just shut up. I close the door. I don't really think anything about it. It's, you know, it's, it is what it is. You think They're all it, people. Everybody has problems. It's just the problems over here are more intense than the problems down south. That's what it boils down to. And nine times out of ten, a problem over here is going to end up involving a gun.
1: So what was it like doing this right along with him? He got several mental health calls every day that I was with him. And on one of the calls, he responded to a man who said that his wife was schizophrenic bipolar and needed to go to the mental health hospital.
3: Mm. So, they probably didn't even record it. Before it's still in here.
0: What we're hearing now is audio from Officer Parker's body camera.
1: Yes. Oh my God, you found it. it. This oh, is, there it. is it.
0: Yeah.
1: And so Parker had just gotten this training that was all about how to deescalate and how to talk to somebody who was manic. And he showed up at this call and this man's wife was pacing and sort of ranting about devils and threats to her family. And the man said, look, she's not right. You gotta take her. And Parker decided that the woman was pretending to be mentally ill and he left. So he was on the scene for about seven minutes. And then he decided she's faking. And he went on to get lunch,
0: but but didn't her husband actually say, like, my wife has a history of mental illness?
1: Yeah, So the husband said she's has schizophrenia. She is bipolar. She's having an episode. But Parker was really looking for whether she was breaking the law. And he decided, you know, ranting and antagonizing your husband. None of that's illegal. And it's hard to get somebody involuntarily committed.
3: I would, when she is right, is when, hey, just sit her down and say, hey, let's get you that
2: help and go to the well
1: He would have had to make a case that she was a danger to herself or others. And then he would have had to get her into an ambulance that day. And he decided this isn't a police matter. And what he said on the way back from that call was, this husband's trying to make this my problem, and why would I make your problem my problem if it's not breaking the law?
4: You just only tagged me. We've got a female on the line now.
1: And then the next day...
4: Calling from the same number saying, help her, but she's not giving any further information.
1: He got called back to that same apartment. Help. You
3: think it's just going to be that same couple? It is that same couple. No, it's, it is. I really didn't want to deal with them.
1: And this time, the woman was threatening her neighbors with a gun and a butcher's knife, and so that was much different. And he immediately focused. He sort of went into cop mode.
4: Oh, okay, we've uh, had between buildings.
1: He went into her apartment where she had this gun, and he was like looking all around the apartment for the gun. He was working with another officer to get her out of the apartment, to get her away from the weapon.
4: Get my baby back
1: get my baby back and you know, it was really tense. And in the end, they were able to de escalate that and get her into an ambulance and get her committed. But the husband was furious. The husband was like, You were here yesterday, you totally blew me off. Now you're back. Mm-hmm. And the situation's much worse. Now the woman has a gun charge. Child Protective Services are going to be looking at her kids, and it could have been even worse. So the husband was like, why didn't you take her yesterday? And mm-hmm. Parker's response was, well, yesterday, she hadn't broken the law yet. Yeah. It's mom,
4: it's mom, man. day I told you,
2: Mr. Here Parker, I said, is, oh, can buddy. you take her to the institution or something? Know, she was
3: not a danger to herself or others, walking around going, get it, get it, get it, get it. Well, but I
2: know already. It been going like this for two weeks, Mr. Box. What about the girl? I don't know where she
0: got that. you do know where she put it. Don't know where well, she what did it. What did the officers say about I that afterward?
1: So afterward, I mean, right afterward, Parker sort of had this surge of adrenaline and he was laughing sort of uncontrollably with another officer. She called me
3: the in word a hundred times. You can't just be done when somebody talks.
1: And talking about how they thought they were maybe going to have to shoot this woman.
3: <laughs> oh, Dude, I really envision her grabbing a Gun and I really did, and we in were gonna. That, in
2: that
3: room? I was like, we're gonna. I was like, we're gonna smoke this woman. I was like, it's gonna happen. That's oh. why. That's why I was telling Rashawn, go look at that apartment, and see if you see the goddamn gun. All right. I was like, this is what it's come down to. As soon as we walked in there, I did this to make sure my light was on. I, I saw <laughs> going south and, and Oh, I did too, dude. I was like, well. <laughs>
1: But then a couple days later, Parker was still talking about this call with some of the other officers in the precinct. And he was just saying that he didn't know what saved it from going that badly. And it felt to him like they just sort of got lucky, like the woman calmed down. There was a big rainstorm that maybe helped and she ended up going peacefully. They never found the gun. And this other officer was saying, to Parker, like, yeah, it's totally unfair because if you mess up, you're going to be blamed, but we're not specialists.
0: When he was thinking back on what happened there and how close he got to potentially killing this woman, did he think about it in relation to the training?
1: So when I asked Parker about this, he said that he was just going on instinct. He totally fell back to what he knew. It was such a high-pressure situation that he didn't Hmm. think about the training at all. Did you think about doing, like, the Johnny, like, hands, like, steepled over your heart thing when you were in that?
3: I never thought about doing any of that. Okay. How come? I just went right back to what I normally
1: do. It like instinct? Yes. But he did do some of the techniques from the training. So he held his hand by his heart. He used this woman's first name. He tried repeating back some of the things that she was saying to her. Like she was saying, I had this gun. It was just to protect myself. I didn't mean to hurt anyone. And he was saying, Yeah, I know you didn't mean to hurt anyone.
4: What did the gun take? A gun? Okay, where did the gun go? I don't know. Sir. I had it to protect me because they're all sides of me. I'm not going to lie. Okay. But, I, I, about that. Yes, okay. I did not. Yes, sir. I did not. Want to hurt anybody? I, know, I just want to keep. Man, no, they, they they keep running up on me, and this
2: case
4: is on them already. Don't make me a liar if you want to try to make a case. Can you get out of my house if you want
1: to try to make a case? Not, I want my child, and he's the protection sure So, sort of, maybe just by instinct or by what he's learned on the job, he was doing some de-escalation tactics. But in the end, those don't seem to be what helped. He tried to talk this woman down and convince her to leave her apartment, but she was just getting more hysterical. And so he ended up just sort of using his body to force her out of the apartment. And his conclusion was that training is not helpful in a situation that could be life or death. But then he also didn't think the training was useful when the woman was just ranting and pacing because he didn't think that was a police matter. So it's just a huge amount of resistance.
0: Like that there is a a fundamental sense that this, we just don't want this to be our job. Like the, Responding to these kinds of situations is just not something that we are fundamentally that interested in doing.
1: Right. Like every time Parker got a mental health call, he's groaning. He would dawdle going over there. He would say, OK, this is going to be really quick. I'm going to get right back to doing real police work. And when he started, these calls weren't a part of the job. It was really just arresting people and doing drug busts and criminal charges. So the job is changing and he can't resist it totally. But it's definitely not something that he's trying to do more of.
3: Why is it that you're taking me, who, you know, let's just be honest here. Not everybody with the highest education becomes police officers. Yeah. So you're taking me and you're trusting me to make a medical decision based off of a few minutes with this person? Yeah. No. If if anything, hey, they go there and they need to be properly examined by the right person with the correct education.
0: Right. Not,
3: right. Not right. Just
0: some third shift officer. What what does Parker think should happen? Like what does he think is the solution for this?
1: So Parker And, you know, a lot of experts who study this would like to see specialized units going out to mental health calls. So some cities are having success with these sort of mobile response units where social workers or specially trained mental health workers go out and check up on people who seem to be in mental health crises. So that would be like the call that Parker got on this first day when this woman was just ranting and pacing and her husband was worried about her. For Parker, that was totally uninteresting and not a police matter. But if you were a social worker or a mental health worker, that would be exactly what your job is, um, trying to connect people in mental health crises to services. So the police would love it if somebody else would take these calls and they wouldn't have to worry about messing them up or dealing with them. The problem, of course, is that takes money. And right now, the money is all going to training. Hmm.
0: Well, that's what seems so ironic about the situation is that, you know, there are obviously a lot of conversations around this idea of defunding the police or taking money that is being given to the police and putting it elsewhere. and people view that as being anti-police. But it seems like what Parker wants and what a lot of police officers want is exactly what defunding the police calls for, like giving money to other people to help deal with these problems that police are ill-equipped to respond to and also seem like they don't even like responding to.
1: I think that's exactly right. This is where Black Lives Matter and the anti-racism movement and... Blue Lives Matter and police officers probably agree. Um, One of the officers that Parker was talking to put it this way. He said, I'm a meathead. They put things on us that shouldn't be related to law enforcement. And then when you screw up because you're not a specialist, you're held accountable.
0: You know, it's interesting that you say that these police officers are saying that it is not their job to deal with these mental health calls and that, you know, they're about kind of serious crime and serious arrests and and not just people having mental health crises. Because I kind of feel like in the year 2020, like dealing with mental health calls That is part of your job. Like a big part of policing is not just making like high level crime busts, but about interacting with the community and being a part of that community. And you can't just write that off as not your job.
1: I mean, what I saw these officers wrestling with was when they joined the police department, they were signing up, they thought, for a different kind of job. And they feel like now, yeah, in 2020, being a police officer is a totally different role, but it's not the role that they feel like they signed up for. And from what I saw, sometimes they feel bad about the way that these calls go. I mean, in the case that I was talking about, this woman was having a mental health crisis and now she has a criminal charge Her children are maybe gonna be put into foster care. She had this traumatic incident where she was sort of forced into an ambulance. And the officers don't feel good about that, but they also feel like they're so out of their depth. Like they don't know how to deal with somebody who's in that situation. And so they feel like it should really be up to somebody who's had a lot more training and specialization.
0: Anna Dreyer is a national reporter for The Post.
4: And now, one
0: more thing about how church choirs are surviving the pandemic. I'm Michelle
5: Borstein. I'm one of the religion reporters at The Washington Post. Okay. Okay. Now
4: you're taping on your end, right? Okay. On my
5: phone, yes. At St. Joseph's in Old Town Alexandria, Cali is in the gospel
4: choir and also in the women's choir there. I'm a soprano, so I need. I, I want to hear my altos. I want to hear the tenors and the bass. I want to hear Mr. C.J. playing his guitar, Mr. Hopper playing the piano. I want to hear all that. It helps me, it motivates me, and it, it moves me.
5: She's always been big into singing. Like she'll just start singing at any moment
4: when you're talking to her. Songs that The the congregation like is God is the joy and the strength of my life.
5: Obviously, everybody knows what it's like to connect with other people and get like a high from singing with other people. But Callie described what a lot of people have described to me, which is that singing together is a kind of calling for them. You're touching somebody. They see themselves as basically uplifting other people in the same way that a pastor preaching is, like conduits of the Holy Spirit.
4: And every time somebody says, oh, you touched me, then I'm fine. Then I've done what God has asked me to do.
5: Choirs really stand out. I talked to some scientists who said that it's sort of like standing in a room and just 100 people coughing at each other for an hour. So churches have been, you know, hotspots all around the country.
4: We sang on the 16th of March, which was the third Sunday in March. That's when everything shut down. No rehearsal, no choir, no gathering, no fellowship. You know, we really, really, really got distant. And choirs
5: have also not been able to meet virtually, which a lot of us do stuff virtually, because there's a time lag on Zoom, and so you can't really sing together on Zoom. So basically, they have not sung as with another person since March.
2: Grant this and all our prayers to your son. Our Lord.
4: Where I am right now, I am in my dining room. And I'm in church. I'm in my church, as I call it. <laughs> I have my hymn book and my missalette, which has all the uh, Bible verses or whatever the readings are. Plenty good room, plenty good room. I will follow and sing whatever it is they're singing. And I just sit here by myself and do that. Plenty good room, plenty good room, just you.
5: Some churches, you know, they can solicit video or audio from people that you make at your house and then turn it into like a cool Zoom-looking Brady Bunch kind of thing. And then there's just been a lot of people who have tried to go to small groups, you know, family singing. A mighty is our God. Or porch choirs, which is, you know, what it sounds like, where you're just singing together with a small group outside. And then they try, you know, some things where they'll have, like, Uh, a call and response, which anyone in Catholic church is familiar with, or someone's singing and then someone's responding. So they'll have everybody mute themselves. uh, And then people, there can be a leader and then people can take turns responding. Tell me, tell me, what do you see? Tell me, tell me,
4: what do you
5: see? There's a lot of beautiful things online, but it's usually, you know, the much more highly produced stuff, not something at an average church like Callie's. We've had this is an ongoing issue in churches, which is that they've become in the last, especially evangelical churches in recent decades, you know, basically performances. And some some clerics I talked to said like they're kind of praying for you. I mean, that's really not. You're supposed to be the one that's connecting. And we've kind of turned that over to entertainers, and that maybe uh, worship has become too entertainment focused and not enough on the experience of the person. But I think for, for people who love singing, and
4: especially choirs, it's a loss. I still do it by myself, but I sure love singing with my choirs. She doesn't feel that she's serving other people, which is how she sees her music. And so when I'm singing here by myself, I don't have anybody sing to her. My family probably sick of hearing me, but, you know. So, but um, sometimes I'll just go in the other room and just get one of my tracks to a song, and just go start singing. That's why I am not
5: ashamed of the gospel. The singing is like another language of how you're talking to each other and bringing each other up and sharing these songs that, whatever song you sing with people that runs through your life, that's what these hymns are, and that's what these gospel songs are. People are in tears when they sing them. You know, there's a lot of, obviously, in every facet of society, but there's a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen to religious institutions because there's a virus. And I think it's just adds to the anxiety, like what's going to happen to churches and small churches? And, you know, when when will they be together again?
0: Michelle Borstein is a religion reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You may have seen that earlier today, President Trump tweeted about the possibility of delaying the election. And we were wondering, can he actually do that? Well, there is, in fact, an episode of our politics podcast, Can He Do That?, that addresses that exact question. To
3: change the date of the election would definitely take a new act of Congress, and it would have to apply both to congressional elections and the presidential election.
0: You can find a link to that episode of Can He Do That? in our show notes and at PostReports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.